0: and the Youth Leaders Praise Team for spelling out our regular praise team. And uh, any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church, which is in room 24. And any kids, uh, I think it's second grade to fifth grade, who like to be involved in the children's choir, can go to room 21, which is back here as well. And with the rest of you, open up your uh, Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. It's on page 735 in your pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 58. As we near our, near the conclusion of our sermon series in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. It's on page 735 in the pew Bible. Let me just read the first... 9 verses of this chapter. Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. As uh, you're aware, my standard preaching practice is to preach through books of the Bible, or at least large portions of books of the Bible, as in the case of Isaiah, uh, rather than preaching a series of little topical sermons. And, uh, and I think that that's how preaching should be done. It's just my own philosophy. There's a place for the topical sermon, but, but I don't think it's the meat and potatoes of preaching. And the reason, one of the reasons I, I have this philosophy is because when you study through a book of the Bible, it lets God's Word set the agenda for what the church needs to hear, as opposed to the preacher setting the agenda. Because I don't care who the preacher is, I don't care how good a heart the preacher has, it is just human nature to gravitate toward those topics, issues, things that are of interest to us. And it is human nature to veer away from things that make us uncomfortable, like Isaiah chapter 58. (laughs) As I will be totally honest with you, if Jeremy was going to preach the things that Jeremy naturally gravitates towards, it would not include Isaiah chapter 58. This is a very convicting text. This is a, a powerful text. And that's why we study through God's Word, because God has things to say to us that maybe we wouldn't want to hear, but that we need to hear, and that are refreshing and and liberating when we embrace them. God wants us to hear it. Look at verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Literally in Hebrew, that phrase, shout it aloud, means to call with the throat, is what the literal phrase in Hebrew you know, it's to shout so that you can rattles around in your throat it's not a whisper this is not a private conversation this is get up on a mailbox and shout to people on the street shout it loud do not hold back raise your voice like a trumpet like a you know like the shofars is the Hebrew word those big ram's horns you know that they blew uh, it made me think of like medieval movies you know where people are in the marketplace and suddenly the king's messengers all come out with those big old long trumpets and they're like you know and and everything stops because everyone wants to hear what the king has to say so this is not a a private little confrontation where God pulls us aside to gently give us a nudge this is a huge public declaration that God needs to make and it's some heavy stuff because he says at the end of verse 1 declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins so you know this is going to be a little pointed verse 2 for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Now you stop right there, and you know, right now there's a tension in the text, because in verse 1 he says he's here to announce their sins, but it looks like in verse 2 they're doing pretty good. I mean, they seem very religious. I mean, look at verse 2. For day after day they seek me out. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Isn't that what we studied last Sunday, if you were here? Seek the Lord while he may be found. So, they're seeking him. Like, what's, you know, what's the big deal? Isn't this good? Isn't this what the prophet wants to happen? We're at the end of verse 2. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Many of these people, they're, they're religious. They're not a bunch of people who, who don't care about God. They're asking God. They're praying. Their church is full. And they're there to, to really seek the Lord. Verse three. Why have we fasted? They say, and you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? I mean, these people are so serious. They're fasting. That's how intensely they want to hear from God. They're willing to abstain from food for a period of time. I don't. When's the last time you fasted to to seek the Lord? You know. I mean, and I'm not talking about like when you have to fast to go get an MRI or whatever, and you you know can't eat all night because they're going to pump you with barium or something sick. You know. I, I mean, like. You know when have, when have you really fasted like i'm so hungry for God that I'm willing to fast for a day or three days. you know I mean for some of us, maybe it's like, well, never, or maybe well, there was this one time like two years ago, and I don't well, oh, maybe it was three I don't know when exactly. I mean these people are so serious they're fasting, and they're all fasting I mean that's how religiously zealous these people are. They're, the whole group is fasting. I mean if, if we got news that up the street at first Episcopal of Hingham they were fasting if we got news that they had some dilemma they were facing at first Episcopal and they were seeking God so intensely that the whole church was called to fasting and prayer for a weekend and we heard that was happening I mean we'd probably be like praise the Lord there's revival you know, we'd think it was amazing news and it would be amazing in a certain way and so that's what these people are doing. I mean, they're seeking God. They're, they're fasting. They're on their knees. They're putting ashes on their head. And they're sitting on the ground and wearing these really itchy clothes called sackcloth. I mean, they're doing all the fasting, humbling things. And yet, for some reason, there's a disconnect. Because they recognize that they're fasting, but somehow this isn't getting through to God. And so they ask the question, God, what's up? We fasted. You haven't seen it. We humbled ourselves. You didn't notice. So where's the disconnect? Disconnect. And it's in verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and is striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You know, the reason that they weren't being heard by God is that once they got up from their fasting, once they finished their prayers... Once they stood up and brushed the ashes off their heads, they went out and just did whatever they wanted. It says here, uh, on the day of your fasting, verse 3, you do as you please. So they fast, they finish their prayers, they finish their formal rituals, and then they're off and they just do whatever they want to do. And you wouldn't have even known that they were fasting and praying that morning. Or it says, you exploit all your workers. So they go to church on Sunday, so to speak, and they, uh, they put the money in the plate and they sing the songs and they say the prayers and they clap and they do all the things of church. And then Monday, you know, they're treating their employees like dirt. They're yelling at people. They're treating them like slaves, like peons, not even acknowledging that they're other human beings. They, they, they don't pay them enough. They and, and they cut other people's wages so that they can increase their own bottom line. It's exploitation, using power and people who need jobs, but exploiting them and just giving them enough barely to get by. And God says, you know, that's what you do after you fast on Sunday. It doesn't make any sense. Verse four: Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. They, they get up from fasting and praying, and then they go home and they're screaming at each other, and, and they go. You know, yelling at each other in the cars on the, the freeway. Well, I mean, they didn't have cars. on. You know, on camels. They're cutting each other off and, you know, <laughs> screaming at each other. Um, you know, they, uh, they, they get they get home and they're talking to each other. Oh, could you believe so-and-so at church today? Oh, you know, that person. No, 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 no. Oh, yeah, and no, 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 no. And they're starting to form little alliances and this group doesn't like that group in the church. After they were just together that morning... You know, praying together. It's so like ridiculous. And God says, you can't do it this way. That's why I'm not listening to your fasting. There's a, a great quote by John Piper. It's, I put it in your sermon notes. He wrote a book called A Hunger for God. It's actually a misquote here. Not hungry for God, a hunger for God. It's a book about fasting. And Piper, speaking on this text, says, in the sermon notes, No worship... No preaching, no singing, no praying, no fasting. However intense and beautiful that leaves us harsh with our workers on Monday or contentious with our spouses at home or self-indulgent in other areas of our lives or angry enough to hit somebody is true God-pleasing worship. How you treat people on Monday is the test of the authenticity of your fasting on Sunday. That's the disconnect. It's that the people got the ritual right but they forgot about relationships true religion reveals itself in right relationships not just right rituals let me say that again true religion reveals itself not just in it reveals itself in right relationships not just in right rituals the problem isn't the rituals. And if you, if you read this text and what you're hearing is that fasting is bogus, then you're misunderstanding the text. The problem wasn't that they're fasting. God commanded them to fast. Fasting is good. Singing is good. Praying is good. The formal actions of worship are commanded by God. But the point is, is that we tend to make those things an end in themselves. And the real evidence of my love for Jesus is going to be when I love you. And the real proof that God's grace is in my life is when I act in a gracious way, toward you that's how I know that God is really alive in me because God is love and everyone who loves God has been, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God because God is love and so God calls us to, to really care for each other that's the evidence you remember when Jesus was asked one time uh, what is the greatest commandment some guy asked him that. I don't know who it was and uh, this is a good question you know, if you're going to try to keep the commandments you ought to at least know like what number one is and at least try to hit the top one And uh, Jesus said, "Well, you know, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then what I find fascinating in that passage is then Jesus throws in a freebie. He says, and the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I find that interesting because the guy didn't ask about number two. He didn't say, give me the top five. He just said, give me number one. But Jesus couldn't give him number one without giving him number two. Because if you do number one, you're going to do... The second one, right? You're going you're gonna to love your neighbor as yourself if you love God. The evidence of loving God is in loving neighbor. It has to flow out naturally. And as John, in First John, tells us, if, if anyone says that he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. To love God means that I'm going to love you, my neighbors, my, my fellow Christians in the body of Christ, fellow human beings. It's just a natural outflow. But it's my human tendency to emphasize ritual over relationships. It's just natural. And the reason is because ritual is easy. Ritual is manageable. I can do ritual and control that. Love is hard. Love is hard. It's very easy to drink a little communion cup with the guy in the pew next to me. Piece of cake. It's hard to sit next to the guy with me in a committee meeting and to really respect that person and to listen to his viewpoints and to make an effort to understand that person and to get out of sight of my own agenda and try to understand where they're coming from and love them and care for them even when we disagree. That is hard work. I find that difficult. <clears throat> you know, it's easy to say the Apostles' Creed. It's hard to go to the fast food restaurant and look the person I'm ordering from in the eye and talk to them as if they're actually a human being. That's hard. I, I don't know why it's so hard. But it is. It's easy uh, if you're a high school student to go on the youth group weekend to Six Flags. That's easy. The hard thing is talking to the dweeby, geeky, Napoleon Dynamite kid (laughs) in your class who everyone else picks on because you know that if you talk to them, you're going to get labeled and get thrown in as as being another geeky, dweeby kid. That's hard to do. But this is real religion. If I really love God, then I'm going to love you If I really am worshipping Jesus and the grace He's poured into my life, it should overflow in in grace toward you. And that was the disconnect. The people were emphasizing ritual over relationships, which is exactly what I tend to do. And so God asks him in verse 5, Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? I mean, is that just about not eating? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed? and lying in sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And then in verse 6 and 7, this, this powerful, powerful passage where God gives them an alternative vision for fasting. Verse 6, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. God says, you want to fast, I'll give you a fast. How about you fast from your own self-interests? and fast from your own agenda and program, and fast from seeking your own comforts and needs and you know, proclivities, and instead focus on the needs of one another, especially especially the people around us who are the most needy. To, to show love where it is most needed. I, I, I think you know, the call here is to love, and, and specifically let's focus on those who are most in need of it. So God pinpoints two types of, of care. The first one is in verse 6, which is more about uh, standing up for people who cannot stand for themselves. Speaking for people who can't speak for themselves. Uh, standing up for people who are vulnerable in a society and don't have the societal um, capital to, to, to speak for themselves and defend for themselves. Caring for the underdogs in our society. People who just don't have it, who can't do it for whatever reason. Um, this is a major theme in the Old Testament and the New, that we're supposed to care for those who are oppressed, people who can't stand up for themselves. In ancient uh, Hebrew culture, that was typically widows and orphans because it was very much uh, a patriarchal society. You know, to, it, it wasn't like today where women really are more empowered and really can you know, get jobs and provide for themselves. I mean, if you were a woman without a husband in ancient Israel, I mean, you were in a tough spot. It's an agrarian culture. You know, you got to go out and work in the fields all day. And and so, you you know, you you need physical strength. You need men to do that. And it took a whole family to survive in that kind of an environment. So if you didn't have a husband, you didn't have an extended male relatives to take you in, you were in a tough spot. And so women and uh, widows and orphans were particularly in danger of being oppressed in that kind of culture. God makes it clear. Now look at your sermon notes. Front page. Exodus 22, 22 22-24. Do not take advantage of the widow and orphan. There it is. And check this out. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. (laughs) And your wives will become widows and your children orphans. Like Whoa! Okay, God, I got it. You... God's serious. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Don't make decisions based upon how rich a person is or how poor a person is. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion in one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor, two other people who lacked power in society. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Micah six eight that famous verse, He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. And James, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. To look after orphans and widows and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. God calls us to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves, to to defend those in society who are powerless and weak, to stand up for justice. And then in verse 7, he also calls us to meet the physical needs of people who are in need. Verse 7 of Isaiah 58, going back there. Is it not, is true fasting not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Uh, God calls his people in the Old Testament and in the New to care for brothers and sisters who are just financially can't provide the basics of life. Food, clothing, shelter. That's part of it. Uh, it's interesting. If you look at the economic model of ancient Israel, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I'd be interested in some of you business types, some of you uh, people who are, who are in the world of commerce, to, to read through the Old Testament law and look at the economic model that God created Israel it's very interesting and you'll see that baked into the economic model at all levels is generosity and care for the poor there's laws like hey when you har- when you you know harvest your field don't harvest the corners because that way the poor need to have a place where they can come and eat and when you're going through your vineyard and you're picking grapes or when you're you know out in the field cutting the, the grain and you know and you go through your field don't go back a second time and pick up the little stuff that you missed leave it so that the poor can follow behind you and, and pick that up. Or there was another law that God made. This one blows me away. Every seven years in Israel was the Sabbath year. And in the Sabbath year, you were supposed to cancel all debts between Israelites. Is that radical? Imagine if every seven years in America all debts went... F- <laughs> People would really want to come to America. It's, it's an amazing concept. Because God's thought was, you know, I don't want any Israelites living as slaves in and oppressed by one another because look at you people you Israelites you're here by the grace of God the reason you're even a people and you're not slaves in Egypt is because I had mercy on you and so if you love me and you want to reflect my glory then you need to be merciful to one another and so God baked into the sort of the uh, the the biorhythms of the society this mercy and grace there's one passage I found I'm sure I've read it before because I've read Deuteronomy many times but for some reason this time it really jumped out at me It's Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's in your sermon notes. It's kind of a long passage, but you've got to read the whole thing. It's it's really cool. This is what God says to His people in Israel. He says, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother, poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Look! Look at this line. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. (gasps) The seventh year for cancelling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will towards your needy brother and give him nothing. I mean, that's what I would do. I'd be like, see, the dude asked me for a sheep, but three months from now is year seven, and I know that if I give him a sheep now, like in three months, he doesn't have to pay me back. I don't know if I'm going to give him that sheep. That's bad stewardship. And God's like, no, 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 You don't think that way. You give if someone asks. Even if it may not make perfect, you know, tight financial sense. You you give to someone who needs. He may then appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. That's the hard part. I I give, I do things. Sometimes I'm like, oh, the last time I'm talking to that guy he's going to hit me up again. You know, I, I have a grudging heart. That's the hard part, I think. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in the land. God provides for those who provide for others. God's blessed us to be a blessing, and if you switch to a lifestyle of giving, God will provide for your needs. And he's promised that. I, I talk to people who really have gotten this concept of philanthropy, of giving, of meeting needs. And the thing that I hear from all of them is I can't outgive God. I give and I give and I give and then God gives me more. I, I don't run out. It's not like I, I give everything I have and then I'm done. It's like God keeps blessing me with more things. And I can't give it away fast enough. I, I've heard one man say, I know whose, whose life is just dedicated to giving. God provides when we give to others. So that's why we preach through books of the Bible, so that we come to passages like Isaiah 58, which I find both very challenging, but also very inspiring. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're experiencing... I mean, of course it's challenging, because, you know, I'm a rich American. You're rich Americans. You're like, well, I'm not rich. Well, you know, compared to the rest of the world, we, are, we live like gods compared to the rest of the world. And, and I think we forget this. You know, we have things like warm houses made of wood. We have uh, more than one outfit in our closets. We have shoes. We can go like this and water comes out and it's clean. We we have food in our refrigerators. We have refrigerators, right? We not only have phones, we have cell phones. You know, and, and these are basic things that I totally take for granted. But there are, you know, this is not exaggeration, literally, Billions of people in the world who've not experienced these things, for whom this is like what? Wow, wow! I wonder what that's like to go like this and have water come out. They just don't have that. And, and I'm I'm a wealthy American, you know. And, I, and and so I read this and I'm I'm so convicted. Like, what do I do? How do I? How do I become an Isaiah 58 kind of Christian? Am I even one at all? You know, you, you just start wondering those kinds of things. But it's not only convicting, I also find this passage inspiring. Because when I read it, I, I, it's not like I just feel beat up. But there's a part of me, and I think probably even the larger part of me, that says, man, I want to do that. I really want to be this person. I, I, I just feel, you know, I do love God. I do love Jesus. I do love people. I, I, want to, I want to love, and especially loving those in need. And I think for me, a lot of the problem is, how do I get from here to there? How do we, okay, so, so we got this call to be Christians who love each other and especially show our love in meeting needs. Uh, so so how, do we, how do we get there? How do I get from here to there? Do I empty my bank account tomorrow and liquidate my assets, put it all in a backpack and $100 bills, and go around Boston comming handing out $100 bills to every vagrant I see? Is that, is that how you put this into practice? I don't know. Do, do I quit my job tomorrow, liquidate all my uh, liquidate all my assets, and go to Manila and minister to street orphans and the kids who live on the trash dumps in Manila? Is that is that what I'm supposed to do? Well, you know, maybe. I don't know. I don't want to want to cut that off. Maybe God is going to call you to do that. But you know, how, so how do I get there? Like, I guess that's I, I kind of think practical application. That's sort of where my mind tends to go in passages. How do I live this? Because I want to be this kind of Christian who stands up for, the, for those who cannot stand up for themselves and who meets the needs of others. But when I look at the global scale of need out there, it almost just makes me say, you know, what's the point? There is so much need. What's germ- Even if I sold all my assets and shipped my money to someone in need, how's it really going to make a difference in this huge world filled with so many needs? And it's almost overwhelming. I just start shutting down. I say, well, whatever, I'm going to Blockbuster. <laughs> I'm going to get a video. I was like, Honey, order a pizza. I, you know, I just stink. I'm a miserable American. Forget it. Um, so, so how do you, And I guess that's what I want to maybe just sort of end this time here. How do we do this? Because I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that I hope you give me that you do love Jesus. And that when you read this, you're going, this is right. How do you get from here to there? How do we do that practically speaking? And I'm going to throw a theory out, throw an idea out, And my idea is that you don't start by looking at the ends of the earth, that the starting place is as close as you can to home and then it's working outwards from there. That you start with the immediate and then you move outwards and you learn how to do it in concentric circles. And the reason I think that this is my sort of hypothesis of how we get there is because so much of the stuff in the Bible about giving to the needy is all about giving to people you know. It's, it's not about shipping money across the world, which is good. But, but it's about, what about the person you know who's in need? What about the needy brother? Uh, you know, I think the starting place is, all right, start with your own family. My first responsibility is to care for the people in my own family. It's for me as a husband to love my wife. There's where true religion starts. It's, it's for me to care for people and to care for their financial needs. Uh, do I have a brother or sister, you know, a, a blood brother or sister, who who's in need? I, I need to meet those needs. I need to care for them. I need to help them out with a rent payment or a mortgage payment. As it says at the end of verse seven of Isaiah chapter fifty eight, "Is not true fasting, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. It starts with the immediate family. Uh, or if you look at your sermon notes again, here's this quote in First Timothy five. Uh, first Timothy 5 is interesting. He's talking about the responsibility of the church to care for widows. But, before the church starts picking up the tab, there's someone else who's got a responsibility to pick up the tab. And that's the immediate family has got to care for widows and orphans. And if they're not doing it, then something's messed up. Look at this quote from First Timothy 5. If a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so we're paying their parents and grandparents. for well, this is pleasing to God. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa! Okay, God. You know, There's another arrow. That's a zinger. I'll tell you what, but that's it. Real religion starts by caring for my immediate family. Do you care for your immediate family? Um, some of you are separated from your spouses or divorced. Do you make your... Child support payments. It's practical things like that. What about aging parents? You know, with the, the baby boom generation aging and, and graying, uh, are, and as more people are, are moving into those senior citizen years, you know, we're going to have to really think about aging parents. Are we caring for them? And not just financially, but really caring for, for their needs. You know, they're lonely. It's, it's, it's tough growing old. Uh, one of the people who's an inspiration to me is my own mother. Uh, she she is doing a great job taking care of her mother uh, my grandpa uh, johnson my mother's mother died uh, a couple years my mother's father died a couple of years ago and is and now my grandma Johnson is widowed um and has been for a couple of years now and and you know she has money she, she can live she's not like she's starving or something but you know it's just hard being old and she's physically not the woman that she was thirty years ago when she raised six kids on a farm single handedly uh, you know, she, she's weak and frail, and, and uh, my mom lives in Nevada, and Grandma Johnson lives in Iowa, but my mom has done a great job of flying out there a lot to help her other brothers and sisters take care of Grandma, and just hang out with her and minister to her, and they do Bible studies together. She's just done a great job, and that's really inspiring to me to, to see her you know, inconveniencing herself so that she can take care of. Of Grandma, and It's something we've got to start with. Start with your own family. Before you want to go out there and change the world, you know, look right at home. That's our first and foremost responsibility before we do anything else. And then after that, I think the next concentric circle we need to look out is within our next family, which is the body of Christ, the family of God. My next area for caring for people's needs is South Shore Baptist Church and the people that I know, that I come in contact with in the church, who have need, and we need to give to one another. Again, this is from the New Testament. Uh, All the stuff about giving in the New Testament tends to be toward other Christians. If you look at your sermon notes again. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers? Page 3. Second quote down. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Or 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we have to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with actions and in truth we need to care for each other in the church. Uh, and, and you know what? You people do that. One of the things that I, I, I can say about this church, and I can't take any credit for it, it's just this church really is a very loving church. And I've witnessed people caring for one another in really tangible ways. Uh, some of you know a lady in our church uh, who last summer went through a series of operations, uh, one of them a very risky, life-threatening operation. And for a variety of reasons, she, she, she's essentially homeless. She didn't have a place to live. And and during, she was very feeble heading into the operation. Obviously, there's a recovery time. And and she didn't have a place to live. And a lot of people in this church took her into their homes for different stretches of time. One family for a long stretch of time, uh, the the Dorns. And they just uh, took her into their home. And she lived with them. And and I think one of the reasons that woman is alive today and in our fellowship and gaining strength is because people took her into their homes. I mean, that's, you know, as a pastor, like, that just makes you so happy. To see the church being what you know the church should be is amazing. And so when you see needs in the congregation, you know, meet those needs. Don't say this, what's the church going to do for that person? You're the church! So, you know, what are you going to do? Does the pastor know about that? Well, who cares, you know? <laughs> pastor got four kids, okay? You know, he... <laughs> pastor's, pastor's got a lot of immediate family issues, you know? I'm not trying to get myself off the hook. You know, just meet the need, meet the need. You know, I I give you permission and empower you to take care of each other whether I'm here or not. You have the freedom to do it. You're officially blessed. <laughs> take care of each other. You can do it. And you don't need the deacons and you don't need the elders and you don't need the pastor to dig into your wallet and help someone out or to let someone into your bedroom, spare bedroom for two months. You don't need anyone's permission to do that. You're, you're free to do it. We need to care for each other. You know, There's this great verse from um, Acts chapter 4. It's at the very bottom of page 3 of the sermon notes. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything as they had. Uh, they, they had look at this sentence underline this sentence there were no needy persons among them people South Shore Baptist Church I think one of the the main markers of our spiritual health as a church is that we need to be able to say among the membership of our church there's no needy people wouldn't it be a cool goal South Shore Baptist Church among the members no one's in need everyone in that church I know has food clothing shelter the basics of life from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Uh, you know, we, we do this in our congregation. There's something called the Deacon's Fund. I don't know if you've heard of the Deacon's Fund. It's like the missions budget, except it's a fund in the church you can give money to. And it's, just, it's administered by the deacons to take care of people who have financial needs. And people come and they say, you know, I, just, I was laid off, I was injured. Workers' comp's not covering it. I'm going back in a month, but I can't make the mortgage payment this month. And the Deacons Fund helps. And so we're doing that too. Um, So we need to keep this up as a congregation. We need to take care of each other. So if you know of something, meet the need. And then after that, we can look out into the community. I I think then that's the next concentric circle. And and there are needs in the community. There are those who are oppressed and and broken and hurting and needing. Even here on the South Shore. You're like, on the South Shore? You know, with Hingham and Norwell and Hanover and Cohasset and all these other shishi towns and Duxbury and... You know, uh I mean, you know, is this like are there really needy people on the South Shore? Yeah, we've got these nursing homes right down the road here in Hingham, and we've got elderly people stacked up like firewood, waiting to die, and their physical needs are met, but, man, they're lonely. It's all get outs, and even their families who love them can't be there every day. You know, there's a huge need. There's, uh, there's battered women on the South Shore who are in battered women's shelters. And I, I know some of the shelters. If you're interested in helping out, I can point you toward them. You know, there's women who, who are oppressed by their husbands and need to get out and flee for their lives. Um, DSS, I, I think, uh, the, the foster care system. It's this a practical way. Maybe God would call you to that. Uh, you know, there's a couple of families in our church. I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want to embarrass the closest in the Murray, so I'm not going to say their names, but... <laughs> They take, a lot of, they take a lot of foster kids and they especially focus on teenagers coming into their home, which is very difficult to do. Uh, it, it's, it's so interesting, though. They have this huge success rate with teenagers coming into their homes. And so DSS's sort of come to them and say, hey, what's your secret? And they say, well, it's God. See, we, <laughs> we pray and, and we try to bring God into the relationship. They're like, Really? You know, and in fact and the state lets them do this it, before a foster child comes into the close marriage home they have to sign a, an agreement with the, the family and part of the agreement is they have to agree to go to church here you believe that? don't have to believe what we believe don't have to sing the songs don't even have to like it but you have to come and, and the state lets them do it because you know why? they're having a huge success rate with their kids isn't that amazing? And, and, how, and how even the state... You know, this is the thing. The state does this whole like separation of church and state thing. But when things fall apart, that goes right out the window, folks. <laughs> and even the state starts going, okay, church, what do you, what do you have for us? We, we're open. And, and that's the situation with the foster. There's so many kids in need. And, and that's a great way to reach out and help. Um, and as long as we're talking about the oppressed and the needy, let us not forget the most oppressed, the most vulnerable... The most endangered group among us which is the unborn, who are oppressed, who are being victimized at a rate of millions a year in our country. More than and people, our country is going to answer for this. I don't know when, I don't know how. You can't do this in God's world and get away with this. And, and so maybe that's a place to help out. Is you know there's. Crisis pregnancy centers. You know, we we can't maybe we we can't assail the Supreme Court, but maybe we can reach out to young women who are just scared to death and they're facing the choice of an abortion, but you know, not because they're villains or something, they're just terrified. And they need someone in love to come alongside them and say, Look, there's other options. There's people here to help you. You don't have to be forced by your family and by the, the guy into that decision. You can you can make a different decision. We're here to support you in that. And so, you know, crisis pregnancy centers, you, there's a woman's concern, daybreak. There's some great ones in Boston you could be a part of. But let's reach out into the community. Let, let's go beyond and, and look out around us. Now, at this point, you're probably feeling overwhelmed. Like, oh, man, this all sounds great, but how do I get there? Okay, you know, family and church and society, ah, you know, I'm so busy, I don't have enough money. And you're right. You're too busy and you don't have enough money. And same with me. I'm too busy, I don't have enough money. Which is why we have to do something. We have to fast. This is the fast that God has chosen. Fasting me, and I'm talking about go without dinner. I'm talking about emptying my life of some things so that I can make room for caring for others. And I think it has to be intentional. I I think this is about life simplification. We all talk about simplifying our lives. And the reason you do it is to make room for other things. And, you know, Strat Goodhue, our mission speaker, was talking about this, simplifying your life and how important that is. And I'm just kind of working on this. I'm really starting to do this. I ordered this book that he recommended on how to do that. Jennifer and I are going to read that. One of the things we decided to fast from, I mean, this is kind of crazy, but Jennifer and I just, you know, we decided we're not going to watch TV anymore. It's just enough. You know, because so many times I start watching TV at night and like, what's on? And, you know, three hours later, nothing's on still, and I wasted three hours when I could have been reading a book with her or praying or whatever. It's just so much of my time I just find just gets, you know, shot just in, in TV. So, except for Monday nights 24, we did commit to that. But <laughs> So I'm not that holy, but, uh, baby steps, baby steps. So, uh, but, but you know we're starting there and it's been great we started reading this book you know that this uh, revolution of world missions we read that chapter to each other out loud and uh, I think after that we're going to read this book uh, I'd like to read this book on simplifying your life but you know it's going to take sacrifices we're going to have to sacrifice money you, you know and I don't know what that is and I think this is where you have to start talking among one another talk in your small group Bible studies pray about how God would ask you to simplify your life you know maybe it's when it's time for a new car this year instead of upgrading Maybe you downgrade. You know, instead of getting the, the Audi, get the Buick. You know, and look like a nerd or whatever. And try, sorry to any Buick people. Or, here. I. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, da- downgrade your car. And then, and then figure out how much money you would have spent on monthly car payments that you know you would have spent. And designate that money and give it monthly to whatever the deacon's fund. You know, I mean, that's, that's fasting. That's denying yourself something that you would have enjoyed and, and undergoing some discomfort and then using the money uh, that way. M- maybe instead of eating out three nights a week, I go to two nights. Or instead of eating out two nights a week, I go to one night and I take the 40 bucks or 50 bucks I would have spent eating out and, and I use that money. So, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to brainstorm. Like, I'm trying to figure out how do I do this? How do I simplify? And I'm, I don't have the answers, but I, I'm just trying to throw out the question. And we need to simplify our schedules. You, you know, what if what if you did give up American Idol? I mean, this is radical. This is radical. <laughs> like, and instead of watching American Idol, that not, or whatever your favorite show is, except 24, of course, uh, you, you know, you pick your favorite show, and you say, I'm not going to watch that, and instead I'm going to go over to the... The single mom's house I know in church is my friend, and I'm gonna say, I'll watch your kids for three hours, and you go off and do whatever you never get to do, because you're a busy single mom. And, and you'll probably get to watch TV at her house anyway, so it's probably a win-win. But, um, you know, uh, or or maybe, maybe instead of, like, signing my kids up for their eighth activity, I, I say, look kids, we're not gonna do lacrosse. You know, we're gonna go as, we're, we're gonna join up as a family, and we're gonna adopt, a shut in in the church, and she's just going to be our, our adopted grandma, and we're going to go hang out with her twice a month. You know, just stuff like that. We make time for lacrosse. We make time for hockey. We spend lot. We do it, people. And, and if we're going to be people who care, I think it's going to take intentionality. It's going to take hard choices. It's going to take looking a little radical. But I think if we don't, all it's going to be is, hmm, that's an interesting idea, and we're just, I'm just going to go on with my life. And so I'm wrestling with this. I don't have the answers. But, but I think we need to move in this direction um, because God has blessed us. This is a really wealthy church. This is a really gifted church. There's a lot of talented, smart people here. There's a lot of really creative, neat people in this church. And, and you know, I would love to sort of leverage everything we are to, to be that kind of blessing into the community and see us be an Isaiah 58 kind of congregation. I need to end here, but l- let me just end with this thought. And why do we do this again? It's not because we're a bunch of naive utopians who think we're going to change the world. We're not. The world's not going to change until Jesus comes back. So that's not why we're doing it. And we're not doing it because we've confused giving a cup of cold water with the gospel, because that's not the gospel. Meeting someone's physical needs is not preaching the gospel. It testifies to us. So, so that's not why. It's not like we've confused those two. The reason we're doing this is because the love of God is in our hearts. It's that simple. And if we love, then love meets needs. As well as the need of the gospel. I've got to stop. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, I, I am so moved by this passage and even more moved preaching it. Jesus, I, I want to be this person. I don't want to just stand up here and make a, a fancy... Oration. I I want to live it. And I I want our church to live this, God. Lord Jesus, make us into a people who love you and love one another and who are willing to love in very practical ways. And Jesus, I, I know that we need to simplify our lives to follow you, that following you always involves leaving something, that you told the fishermen to leave their nets. And Lord, following you means we have to leave things, we have to fast. And so God, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts and show us what the Holy Spirit would have us fast from. Maybe money things, maybe time things. But Lord, help us to make room in our lives for the kingdom of God, to serve the kingdom of God. And then Lord, show us that whatever we give up is just piddly compared to what you're going to pour into our laps when we do serve you. That, that the things that we thought were so important that we're quote-unquote fasting from are just nothing compared to the blessings you'll give us as we focus on you and focus on those in need. So Lord, uh, do it. In our midst, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we have time. Will you guys indulge me and just stand and sing one more song? I know I ran late, but this is sort of a big text. And Youth Praise Team, would you lead us? And We're going to sing one of those passages we just read, Micah eight.